Hi, I'm Dan Primack, and welcome to Axios Recap, sponsored by Amazon. Today is Monday, February 1st. The price of silver is up, shares of GameStop are down, and we're focused on the post-pandemic future of work. American labor has long been stratified into blue-collar and white-collar, but the hues have never shown so brightly as they have during the pandemic. Many blue-collar workers have been deemed essential, uh, like FedEx warehouse workers or grocery store clerks, and thus they've continued to go to a physical building each day, despite the added safety concerns and, for those with kids, little in-school learning or available childcare. Many white-collar workers, on the other hand, have continued their jobs but from home, substituting their commute for more hours at their desks or helping kids connect to their Zooms. Now, to be sure, there are exceptions on both sides here. Lots of service industry workers, particularly in hospitality or food service, have lost their jobs entirely. Some white-collar workers, like ER doctors, have continued not only to commute, but have taken on extraordinary health risks. Overall, though, the pandemic has laid bare the haves and have-nots and caused many of us to reconsider our relationships to work and what we're willing to put up with in exchange for making a living or maybe in exchange for just barely scraping by. In 15 seconds, we'll go deeper with author Sarah Jaffe, who just published a book titled Work Won't Love You Back. But first, this. We're joined now by author Sarah Jaffe, whose new book is called Work Won't Love You Back. So Sarah, you delivered this book to your publisher just before all hell broke loose last February, and then went back and had to talk to a lot of the subjects, the workers you had spoken to in the research to understand how things had changed for them during the pandemic, whether they be blue collar workers or white collar workers or people in various parts of the country. What commonalities, if anything, did you learn about people's relationship to work vis-a-vis the pandemic? Pretty much everybody's situation had gotten worse. Um, that's the, the short version of it. People who were working at home were working mostly longer hours and sort of more depressed and more isolated. People who were still going to work were going to work in fear of their lives. Um, the domestic worker that I interviewed, uh, Adela Seely, who's a was a day-to-day nanny, so she would go to her clients in the morning and go home to her own family at night, now had moved in with her clients, so her own kids were sort of fending for themselves. Um, and most people were, um, oh, and the teachers, that's the big one, right? Cause the teachers both at the university level and the K through 12 level were all in this horrible moment of teaching online, missing being in the classroom, but also being afraid to go back to the classroom and being pushed in a lot of cases by their bosses to get back in the classroom when they didn't feel safe. When you think about this, and, it, and this has obviously now been going on for, you know, 10 months at this point, you and I are both having this conversation uh, from our homes. How much of what happened, the kind of corporate response or work response, whether it be corporate or not, do you think is kind of endemic and reflective of kind of broader systemic issues in our relationship to work? And how much of it is just everybody flying by the seat of their pants because nobody prepared for something like this? It's definitely a little bit of both, right? The employers, like we just got numbers for last year's um, layoffs and and how that affected union density in this country. And one of the things that happened is that like a ton of people lost their jobs, right? But union density actually went up because the people who lost their jobs were more likely to be in a non-union workplace. So things like that, where workers had a little bit more power, they were more likely to have some protections. You talk a lot in the book about, you know, quote, dream jobs or, or this, uh, this idea of, you know, loving what you do and then you don't ever work a day in your life. 
how much of that is a fairly recent construct of kind of white folks who go to liberal arts schools as opposed to everybody else? So I definitely think it's a fairly recent construct that in the book, I sort of talk about the decline of industrial labor and the rise of things like service work taking up more and more of the economy. That's why I say, you know, there's sort of three kinds of people right now, right? There are people like you and me who can do our jobs mostly safely from home. There are people who are, you know, I just heard a snowplow going by outside. There are people who are still going to work in scarier conditions. And then there are people who are screwed because they don't have a job right now and because we still haven't, you know, re-upped unemployment. So um, that's, those are the three brackets of, of pandemic work. And the people who um, are being expected to love their jobs, definitely it's a lot of people like you and me, but it's also people who are like low, the lowest wage and one of the fastest growing jobs in this country, which is home healthcare work right, which is a job that is expected to add some of the, the highest numbers of workers over the next 10 to 20 years, according to most labor department projections. And that's work where people are making minimum wage or a little bit over. They're working extremely long hours and it's extremely emotionally taxing work where you are doing very intimate care for another person. And so the thing that I end up writing about a lot in this book is how we sort of get this narrative of the creative work that, again, is the story that gets told to people like you and me, people who go to liberal arts schools, people who wanted to go into academia or the arts. But then there's also this narrative of caring workers and service workers and sort of low wage retail and food service workers, the people who are right now, they are either the essential workers who are still going to work. But the, the typical person who's got a warehouse job or a restaurant job, et cetera, while they might not hate their job, might like the people they work with or whatever, do you feel that they're under the illusion that they're supposed to, quote, love their job and feel that this is part of a family as opposed to, no, I'm going here, I, I'm, I'm doing something in exchange, I get a check and in exchange for the check, I can hopefully pay my rent. That's the transaction. And I'm under no illusions. There's anything beyond that. So the thing about it is that like I worked in restaurants for about 14 years before I finally um, went to journalism school and got a full time job. I've told this one particular story so many times because it was like right after I finished college, you know, I go in to interview for this restaurant job and the, the boss sort of looks at me and goes, so where do you expect to be in five years? And I'm like, this is a restaurant job. You're going to pay me $2.13 an hour because that is still the tipped minimum wage. And I'm just like, dude, for that, you get me showing up, right? Like that is the thing that I expected is this is a job where I show up and I do the work. And at the same time though, you know, I'm making that 2.13 an hour tipped minimum wage. So in addition to my boss expecting me to smile and be cheery and whatever, whatever, as I show up, I have to do that performance to every single customer in order to get a tip because that was mostly the only thing that I got paid. So if I didn't put on a big smile, me sometimes you know, men are grabbing at you and, and the customers are saying horrific things to you all the time. And like, you have to put up with that and smile and at least pretend to be having a good time. And that is a big difference between that and like even working in an Amazon warehouse. Although even Amazon warehouse, I drove by a billboard the other day with a big sign saying, have a job delivering fulfillment. Really? It's a warehouse job. What, if anything, do you think is going to come out of the pandemic that changes our relationship to work? Or do you think this pandemic is just a moment in time? Everyone's going to view it as an anomaly. And hopefully once we get to, you know, a, a herd immunity or mass vaccination state, we, we just look back at it as a weird moment in time. Yeah, I think the question is going to be what we do with this moment. Right. And it's been interesting to sort of watch the Biden administration's first 
I guess, couple of weeks of the appointments that have been made to things like the National Labor Relations Board, the conversations that are being had, the immediate executive order, for instance, um, allowing people who refuse to go to work because they're afraid of the illness to actually have access to unemployment benefits again. Like that's a, an actually a big shift that could be done relatively quickly and actually changes your relationship of power to the job. Because normally if you want to get unemployment, you have to be laid off, right? You can't just quit and collect unemployment. But if you are saying, I don't feel safe because I work at, you know, the restaurant down the street here and they are expecting me to do all this stuff in close proximity with other people and I don't feel like they're taking precautions, I am not going to go to work. If you can get access to unemployment, that again, that changes the power relationship on the job. And so looking at little things like that and then saying, okay, how does that get moved up on the bigger scale? Sarah, final question for you. With the people you talked with, particularly in the midst of the pandemic, what is the one thing you think kind of stereotypical blue collar workers can learn from the white collar worker experience and vice versa? Hmm, that's a good question. Um, I think that the thing that we can learn from, hmm, like honestly, my experience has been that a lot of people actually all have the same problems, which is the same story gets told over and over again, whether that is a domestic worker or the you know video game company workers that I interviewed, which is like the workplace is like a family and your loyalty should be to the family, except as you know, the, the video game programmer that I talked to noted, your family doesn't have mass layoffs once a year. So I think the thing that I would say both sides of workers need to learn is that actually we're all still workers and we're all still in a, you know, essentially sort of conflictual relationship with the boss. And that means that we have to actually think about it, not like a family, but like somebody is, is trying to get something out of you that you may have a different idea of what you owe them. Sarah Jaffe, the name of the book is Work Won't Love You Back. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. One quick editorial note, Amazon is one of our sponsors but of course does not impact editorial content. Welcome back. What we're watching today is President Biden, who's scheduled to meet with 10 Senate Republicans over the latest effort at economic stimulus. Biden, of course, wants a $1.9 trillion plan, while the GOP today proposed a $618 billion counteroffer. Obviously, there are lots of differences between the two proposals, but here are a couple big ones. First, the GOP plan would send $1,000 direct payments to taxpayers, with those checks beginning to phase out for those making at least $40,000 per year. Both of those figures, the $1,000 and the $40,000, are smaller than Biden's. Two, the GOP plan would not include state or local aid outside of K-12 schools. The Biden plan includes $350 billion for state and local governments. The bottom line expect negotiations to be impacted by new projections from the Congressional Budget Office, which today says it expects a lower unemployment rate and better economic growth in 2021 than it previously projected. Today, we are also continuing to watch fallout from the Reddit trading saga, including upcoming congressional hearings in both the House and Senate. As of this taping, GameStop shares are on the downswing of their roller coaster, off more than $70 per share. And there's all sorts of talk silver the commodity, not some stock, could be the next big gainer, based on, of course, a Reddit post. In early trading today, silver prices jumped to their highest level in nearly eight years before giving up some of those gains. And we're done. Big thanks for listening. And to my producers, Tim Shovers, Naomi Shaven. 
Have a great national Baked Alaska Day. And we'll be back tomorrow with another Axios Recap.